Audible is the leading provider of spoken word entertainment and audiobooks, ranging from bestsellers to celebrity memoirs, news, business, and self-development. Every month, members get one credit to pick any title, plus two Audible originals from a monthly selection, and access to daily news digests from the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the Washington Post, as well as guided meditation programs. Between a full-time job in IT and a full-time job in podcasting, it gets harder and harder to sit down and read the books I'm interested in. This is where Audible comes in. I can listen on my daily commute, relaxing, or while out running errands and still get in the books I've been wanting to get into. You can download titles and listen offline anytime, anywhere. The app is free and can be installed on all smartphones and tablets. Now you can try Audible risk-free with a special 30-day free trial by visiting audibletrial.com forward slash nerdery and murdery. That's audibletrial.com forward slash nerdery and murdery. Don't let your busy life get in the way of that great book you've been wanting to read. Go get your free trial of Audible today. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. This is Jeffrey, and we've talked about many times before that I experience problems and struggles with my mental health. And really, without a healthy mind, being truly happy and at peace is hard. The good news is therapy does work. It's helped for me. But but what is is therapy exactly? It's it's whatever you want it to be. Maybe you're not feeling motivated right now and would like some tools to help. Or maybe you're feeling insecure in relationships at work or you're not dealing well with stress. Whatever you need, it's really time to stop being ashamed of normal human struggles. And, and it's time to start feeling better because you deserve to be happy. And now you don't have to worry about finding an in-person therapist near you to help. BetterHelp is a customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours. So join the millions of people who are seeing what online therapy is really about. It's always a good time to invest in yourself because you are your greatest asset. And there's a special offer to Nerdery and Murdery listeners. You can get 10% off your first month of professional therapy at betterhelp.com slash nerderyandmurdery. That's betterhelp.com forward slash nerderyandmurdery. Thanks again to BetterHelp for sponsoring this podcast. You're listening to the sweet, sensual, and serendipitous sounds of Nerdery and Murdery. Sig, damn it. Welcome to episode 79 of Nerdery and Murdery. Big 79, I'm Zig with your Nerdery. And I'm Jeffrey with your Murdery, here again for another week of our hijinks and our low jinks, as I say before. Uh, looking forward to another good episode from us, and hopefully everybody is still enjoying listening to us at episode 79. Um, 79. Can you believe we've done 79 episodes already? No, I can't. That's that's absolutely amazing, and and I'm absolutely amazed 
every Sunday when I wake up to see the amount of downloads that have already okay. happened early, early in the morning. Like we've got, we've got some very dedicated listeners, which seem to start everything up at, you know, like midnight. Yeah. Right off the bat. Yeah. Um, uh, it, it's really, really kind of wonderful. I, I'm really enjoying it. Uh, yeah, I am too. I am too. Thanks. thanks. Thanks for, thanks for doing this with me. So with that, I will let you take over on the nerdery side of the house. Awesome. Today we're going to talk about five detective series from the 1980s. Outstanding. I bet I've seen half of these. <laughs> uh, so I originally started with a much larger list, and I had to kind of Which trim it down. actually doesn't make sense on five, because half of them I would have only seen half of it. So, no. <laughs> well, yeah, maybe it's something you saw once or twice and don't really remember it. Yeah. The detective series I'm discussing um, are Hard Knocks, Remington Steel, Moonlighting, Riptide, and Simon and Simon. So I've seen all of Moonlighting, most of Remington Steel, and some of Simon and Simon. So yeah, I was I was pretty close on the two and a half on on the <laughs> two and a half. Two and a half. There you go. You got it. Okay. So of all of these shows, they are readily available on the free sites. You can catch them either on Freebie, Tubi, um, Pluto, um, Amazon Prime, things like that. Except for Hard Knocks. You can only catch Hard Knocks on YouTube, and I have included on this episode's uh, playlist a, an entire episode of Hard Knocks, probably the funniest one. All right. Um, so we're going to start with Hard Knocks. Hard Knocks was created by uh, uh, Chris Thompson. He was a writer and producer for Bosom Buddies and The Larry Sanders Show, so both comedies, right? Hard Knocks is a an American comedy drama television series that aired on the Showtime Network. It features Bill Maher and Tommy Hinckley. Yes, that Bill Maher. Mm-hmm. And ideologically, as ideologically opposed, private detectives looking to make money by solving the problems of their wealthy clients. Now, some of the shows I pared down, originally I wanted to do like Hardcastle McCormick and things like that, but I wanted to focus on detectives. These guys all have detective agencies. That's mm. why they're in this list. All right. Uh, so it it uh, centers on Gower Rhodes and Nick Bronco open a private detective agency in the back of a restaurant to make money by solving cases. However, nothing seems to go their way. Um, here's a, re- use, a user review of it. Hard to believe the show has fallen so far down the memory hole. It was like a weird buddy cop show with Bill Maher and Tommy Hinckley. Mars was a sort of straight arrow, and Hinkley was dumb and prone to eruptions and violence. But it was a videotape sitcom on Showtime. It ran sometimes in tandem with It's the Gary Shandling Show. Uh, there was a restaurant involved somehow. Jim Valley of the Funny Boys is a very funny character. He was a, a chef at the restaurant, and on one gag, he recalls the show of him baking a cupcake that was supposed to look like Mindy Cohen from The Facts of Life. His character was often at odds with Renee Prop's character. Uh, that's that's all I got, except I remember it being a good comedy, and I remember suddenly, suddenly and unceremoniously disappearing from the schedule. And that is true. It only ran one season. Mm-hmm. But it was really funny, and it was also a really good detective show. They had to deal with the mob, corrupt policemen. Um, 
having hits put out on them. Um, at one point, the chef, Silky, who's their friend, almost poisons them, but they talk to him, and he's like, don't eat the dip. It's the dip of death. Jim Valley is hysterical in this. He's the guy that plays Silky. But yeah, they're basically – they're two cops that got bounced off the force um, for a corruption scandal that they had no part in, but they got blamed for. And it's just them and this detective agency, and it's – oh my god, it's brilliant. And it's so funny and so serious at the same time. It's you know, it's great. And, and the fact that it, it went away and no one remembers it is terrible. Yeah, I va- terrible. I vaguely remember this one. I, I I I have some knowledge kicking me in the back of the head on this one, but I know it's one that I never watched. Yeah, well, you know, if if you liked Bosom Buddies and thought it was funny, uh, you'll like this show. Mm-hmm. You know. Because it's basically um, it's basically NYPD Blue meets Bosom Buddies, okay. if that were a thing, if okay. that were a genre. Yeah. The next one is Remington Steel. It's an American crime drama television series co-created by Robert Butler and Michael Gleason. The series stars Stephanie Zimbalist and Pierce Brosnan and was produced by MTM Entertainment, Mary Tyler Moore's production company. Uh, and first broadcast on NBC Network on October 10th, 1982 to February 17th, 1987. The series blended the genres of romantic comedy, drama, detective procedurals, and towards the end of the series, international political intrigue and espionage. So Remington Steele uh, is the premise that Laura Holt, a licensed private investigator, opened a detective agency under her own name but found uh, potential clients refused to hire a woman no matter how qualified, to solve their problems. So Laura invents a fictitious male superior she names Remington Steele. Mm-hmm. There's a series of events in the first episode. Uh, Pierce Brosnan, uh, a former thief and con man whose real name even he, he proves not to know and is never revealed in the series, assumes the identity of the titular Remington Steele. Behind the scenes, a power struggle erupts between Laura and Steele as to who is really in charge while the two carry on a casual romantic relationship. Um, The idea of this was originally conceived in 1969 by Robert Butler. Um, Butler pitched the idea to Grant Tinker before he was head of NTM, but Tinker felt the series was ahead of its time. So in January of 1980, following the success of several sitcoms featuring working women, including the groundbreaking, Mary Tyler Moore show, the, the very first thing produced by MTM Productions. Butler and Tinker, now head of MTM, revived the concept. MTM's vice president programming, Stu Irwin, uh, felt Butler's concept was only half a show and suggested that Butler work with veteran writer Michael Gleason to expand the premise, imagining, imagining Holt's fictional boss. Uh, Gleason proposed to Butler, wouldn't it be great if the sh- he showed up and, and made her crazy? Which is basically what Remington Steel is. I mean, that's that's um, that's what that show is. But basically, you've got you've got this <clears throat> this no nonsense private detective. She's got another detective under her belt who's working there, who in the first season is just totally at odds with Remington Steel because he can't stand the dude because he's a con man. He's you know. This dude is obviously trying to con people, but right. in truth, because he's a con man, 
he understands the mind of criminals. So he becomes invaluable as the series progresses. So the young detective ends up leaving. They bring in an older lady who basically runs the office who for the, the, for the in the second season um, who believes that Remington Steele is the boss until I think the last season they finally say, hey, this was a, a ruse. And she's like, oh, yeah, no, no, I figured that out a long time ago. <laughs> but uh, but she could see that they're really good at what they do. And uh, I, I'll be honest. The romantic interplay between the two of them, it was okay, but honestly, I think they could have – they didn't really need it. You know, The two of them working together as these brilliant detectives because that's what they were. Um, Laura is very by the book and you know follows things down to the nth degree, and Remington Steele will con people into giving them him information. And you never find out what Remington Steele's name is. They never right. say it. Right. Yeah. Um, he gets called a couple of different names throughout the series for people that he's worked with in the past when they run into him. But uh, but yeah, that's uh, that's basically it for Remington Steel. Other than you should get out and see it. What did I'm you great. think of Remington Steel? I love. How, how do you feel about? I love Remington Steel. Uh, Pierce Brosnan is is great in his role. That's a that that's a super super fun series. Um, I put it up there. It, with the with the enjoyability factor of moonlighting, which I know you're going to be covering as well, Jeff. I have a quite a bit of notes on moonlighting, but I I might kind of keep those a little shorter because there was a lot in the production of moonlighting that was it well it was contentious. Mm. But yeah, Remington Steel almost I want to say it you know it kind of went up against moonlighting, but it it didn't because Remington Steel was over. By the time moonlighting was basically kicking off, mm-hmm. you know, um, but yeah, it's it's one of those you should really check out. Chris Brosnan is great. Uh, Stephanie Zimbalist is great, and uh, and I've included the uh, some of the supporting cast in there too. Everybody in that series was great. Loved it. Um, uh, I, oh, I did want to say that NBC did a, uh, ask for a pilot that imagine the series six months into its run or the characters already working together in the detective agency. This pilot was produced in February and March of 82 and was eventually aired with a revision tempered steel. Uh, so they basically ran both pilots. Uh, so the first four episodes are the first two pilots. Um, the next series is, as we spoke about moonlighting moonlighting is an American comedy drama television series that aired on ABC from March 3rd, 1985 to March 14, 1989. The network aired a total of 67 episodes. It starred Sybil Shepard and Bruce Willis as private detectives and Elise Beasley as their quirky receptionist. The show was a mixture of drama, comedy, mystery, and romance and was considered to be one of the first successful and influential exam- examples of comedy drama or dramedy emerging as a distinct television genre. The show's theme song was co-written and performed by jazz singer Al Jarreau and became a hit. Mm-hmm. Um, this show, the thing about Moonlighting. Now, Remington Steel, yes, it was kind of detective-y. It was kind of gumshoe. It was still very modern. This show, even though it was a modern shoot, this show feels like it could have been written in the 40s and partially filmed in the 60s. Oh, sure, sure. It absolutely has that feel. Yeah. As a matter of fact, they would do a couple of 
weird episodes where they would either they did Taming of the Shrew. They did an episode that was Taming of the Shrew. Mm-hmm. If you don't see any other episodes of Moonlighting, see the Taming of the Shrew uh, episode. It's incredible. And honestly, this is the best work that Bruce Willis ever did. I love Die Hard and everything else. He never played as well as he did in this film or in this series. Well, this 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 series really is 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 the catalyst that really launched his career. Yeah, yeah, and and you know, he was quick and and quirky and and odd and you know almost out of his time. The, the character of David Addison. Mm-hmm. Um, dude, I've seen. I've seen a cut down version of Moonlighting done for the stage, a one act play based on Moonlighting with that same sort of super snappy dialogue that just pops and pops. It's brilliant. Um, and I would recommend it to anybody. Um, but yeah, so basically the idea is Bruce Willis is a private detective. And Alice Beasley, Elise Beasley is her quirky receptionist. Now, this company was originally Moonlight, Moonlighting Detective. The Blue Moon Detective Agency was owned by this old rich guy, right? He was using it as a tax write-off. The guy dies, and uh, everything is left to his widow, his young widow, who is a former model. Um, however, in going over the book, she realizes that uh, they are basically broke. Or she is basically broke, and the only asset she has that's viable is this detective agency. So she realizes that it is the only viable asset that she has left, and she, you know, she has to go to work. So she goes into work and becomes a detective with this guy, David Addison, who runs Blue Moon Detective Agency, which was formerly a tax write-off. However, David Addison is a real detective. Um, but he was never concerned with making money. He was concerned with solving cases. So that's basically where the the story starts out. And then there's this this will they or won't won't they? The romance, yeah, yeah. Um, which I think kind of killed the show. Um, uh, most people agree with that. Uh, most people agree that that absolutely killed this show. Uh, mm-hmm. similar to when uh, it, it, you'll get a similar thing with Cheers with Sam and uh-huh. Diane with the when they finished the will they won't they and they finally got together they thought that that killed Cheers yeah. and and eventually Shelley Long left and they could start kind of start over again and this is very yeah. similar here uh, that when they ended the will they won't they and they did yeah. that it 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 really killed the show yeah yeah. yeah. Um, but I will say one thing about that show that they, they did use, uh, uh, lighting effects that they usually only use for big budget films to capture mm-hmm. the cinematic film of films of the 1940s. Like they would, they were prohibited from using a zoom lens. Uh, instead they use more time consuming moving master cameras, uh, and then move back and forth on tracks, which requires constant resetting in the lightings. Also, diffusion discs were used to soften Sybil Shepard's features. So anytime she is lit by herself, she's lit like a 1940s starlet. Mm -hmm. Which means that it's not necessarily expensive because those diffusion discs are cheap. 
where the expense comes in is you have to, okay, cut. And then you move the camera over to her, put the light on, and then you start rolling again. Now, as long as that person is, is fully bought into that process and goes and hits their mark on time when they're supposed to be there, it's not that bad. The problem comes in when the performer doesn't show up on time. Doesn't know their, uh, doesn't know their, uh, their lines. Mm-hmm. Doesn't understand the process of the scene and has to break it down. I don't want to cast aspersions, but from a lot of people in this show, not just from, um, the artist side, but also from the production side said that that was a real problem. With well, at first Sybil Shepherd, and then with Bruce Willis. Was he just getting, there, was he just getting too big for himself? Well, no, no, it was her at first. Right, no, no, I understand. She, but then yeah, him, he was yes, yes. After dealing with it for a couple of years, plus he was hardly ever there because he was out shooting movies and other stuff. Because he did a lot of when this took off in '85. By '86 and '87, he was out doing movies. Mm-hmm. And he made a lot of them. And doing specials, and he did a, a he put out an album and did a tour. All of this in the period of like three or four years while the show was being filmed. So his availability wasn't there. Whereas um, with Sybil Shepherd, the problem was she wouldn't show up when she was supposed to show up. Now that could be. That could be down to the fact that she wasn't comfortable with the with the material because it is very fast paced and uh, fast paced material like that. If you're not in the groove with the writers when they're writing it, you're not going to be able to say it the way they want you to say it unless you hear them say it to you. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like you need to be sitting in with the writers if you're going to be doing that snappy dialogue like that. Sure. Which is which is why um, um, Gilmore Girls works so well because the main cast would sit in with the writers when they were writing some of this dialogue out and basically tell them how the cadence would go. It's like, okay, this is what we want, and then the actor would go off and play that. And you have to be pretty good as well. You know what I mean? Right. You have to have good instincts, and I don't think I don't think Sybil Shepherd did at the time. I think she does now. Um, the show that she did after this uh, show called Sybil, um, which was also very very snappy, she was really good at. It. And I think that it's because this show honed her career or, or honed her chops. Mm-hmm. Because before this, she hadn't done a whole lot in film. She was mostly a model. I mean, she did. Uh, uh, the last picture show and some stuff like that, but those were movies, you know, that wasn't a weekly series where she had to be on set 10, 12 hours a day, you know, as well as a, a couple of hours in makeup beforehand and after in costuming and all that stuff. So I think this was more of a commitment that she really necessarily realized. And then by the time she got to Sybil, it was, she was more there. So, um, like I said, I had a lot of notes on on this. Um, they drew a lot of ideas from My Fair Lady and the picture of Dorian Gray. Um, 
and you know various other ideas um again if you've never if you never see an episode of moonlighting go and watch the taming of the shrew episode uh it's about middle of the pack of the season it is it's brilliant it's well done it's taming of the shrew um and it's not in iandemic pentameter although they do use iandemic pentameter and they even say iandemic pentameter a couple of times in the show um iambic iambic thank you iambic pentameter yeah, it's too hard for me to say there you go <laughs> but yes yeah, so they even say it a few times uh but they do use that very 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 snappy dialogue um also uh Sybil Shepherd uh, had a baby during this period, and uh, at the same time, Bruce Willis was skiing <laughs> and broke his clavicle. So they kind of centered the show a little bit more on the Elise Beasley character and uh, in her interplay with Curtis Armstrong. And I honestly want to say that some of those shows where there was there were there were Herbert and uh, Mister Pesto episodes were just as strong as some of the. David and Maddie episodes of the first season. Um, so, but it's it's definitely something you want to get out and see. Um, the show was really, really popular. Um, and I think one of the reasons that it was so popular is because they didn't make that very – they only made – they ran, what, five years and they made – oh, four years, sorry, and made 67 episodes. Mm-hmm. That's perfect. I, I Honestly, I think they had – I think uh, other than a couple of clunkers that they made – Again, because it was hard to get the people in. Every single one of those episodes is worth worth a watch. I would agree. Yeah. Um, my next series is called Riptide. Riptide is an American detective te- television series that ran on NBC from January third, nineteen eighty four, to April twenty second, nineteen eighty six. It starred uh, Perry King, Joe Penny, and Thomas Bray. Uh, the series are created by Frank Lupo and Stephen J. Cannell and produced by Stephen J. Cannell Productions in association with Columbia Pictures Television for NBC. The main theme was composed by Mike Post and Pete Carpenter. It was a mid-season replacement. It debuted as a two-hour TV movie in early 1984, uh, and after its cancellation reruns aired on the USA Network during the late 80s. The series currently appears occasionally on the schedule Get TV in decades, um, but it basically concerns – Cody Allen, Perry King, and Nick Ryder, Joe Penny, as two former Army buddies who decided to open the Pier 56 Detective Agency, later known as Riptide Detective Agency, in Los Angeles, California. Realizing that computers and technology play a major role in many investigations, they recruit the help of Murray Boz Bozinski, a brilliant but nerdy scientist and computer hacker whom they met while they were serving within the Army. Uh, the team operates out of Cody's boat, the Riptide, uh, moored at Pier 56 at King Harbor Marina in Redondo Beach. Uh, the men have several other tools that they fight against crime and injustice. These include Murray's robot, the Robaz, which is a robot that doesn't speak. Mm. They they wanted to do the, – the idea was, look, this, this little robot that they've got running around doing calculations and things, we want it to be realistic. So this is what robots were in the mid-1980s. It's basically an industrial robot with a bird beak face. Um, Nick's aging Sikorsky S-58T helicopter, the Screaming Mimi, which is 
painted bright pink with uh, big red screaming lips on the front of it. I have included pictures as well as videos. Um, Nick occasionally used for his sideline business, Ariel Harbor Tours, and Cody Speedboat, the Ebb Tide. Nick also owns a classic red Chevy Corvette. In early episodes, Cody drives an orange Woody station wagon, which is later replaced with a four-wheel drive custom GMC Jimmy. Um, There's a local police officer who continually harasses the trio. Uh, They do have an uh, agency police contact during the final episodes uh, who's more cooperative. And during the first few episodes, Mama Joe and Francis is the crusty skipper of the Barefoot Contessa. A tourist boat with all an all-female crew, um, and then introduced later in the first season is Max, a comedian at the local club. And the second season expands and also features Dooley, a dock boy who occasionally assists the team in their escapades. Um, the show's penultimate episode, If You Can't Beat Them, Join Them, shows Cody and Nick acting as consultant to Rosalind Grant and Carrie Russell – the bickering stars of a television detective show pilot that closely resembles and parodies Moonlighting. <laughs> Riptide's former primetime competition on Tuesday nights. So in Riptide, they make fun of uh, Moonlighting toward the end of the series. Run. Um, there's a lot of mobsters depicted in the show and some sensitive topics like corruption among the U.S. Army, high-level cover-ups, and black ops by corporate America. The third season's Home for Christmas with a performance of James Whitmore has a strongly emotional tone. And when I say strongly emotional tone, it's about them bringing home the body of a POW to his parents on Christmas, 10 years after he went missing. That one will make you cry. Um, these are all available. I want to say it's Tubi, but it could be Freebie. Uh, but you can see the whole series out as well as the opening, which is the second best opening of these five detective series I picked. Um, and I did include some pictures of the screaming Mimi, which is incredible. Uh, did you ever watch Riptide? Mm-mm, no, this is one of the ones that I hadn't watched. I want to say Riptide was on at the same time of an, as another popular show. And like, I was watching Riptide cause I thought it was funny. Plus they dealt with a, they work with computers a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, a lot on a old combi sixty four too, but it was it was fascinating. It was technical. Um, whoever their technical people were were pretty good. I've gone back and watched it recently. Not bad. It still holds up. It's not BS. Um, well, it's a little bit BS, but it was television in the nineteen eighties. You know, you have to expect some of that. Um, but yeah, this is one of those shows. Uh, they have an excuse to fire up that helicopter in every episode. And when I say aging, they mean aging. This thing is blowing smoke every time they start it. But it's, yeah, it's a giant pink Sikorsky um, with a big old screaming face on it. My last uh, detective series in this set is Simon and Simon. Simon and Simon is an American crime drama television series that originally ran from November 24th, 1981 to September 16th, 1989. Eight seasons, people. Mm-hmm. The season was broadcast. Uh, the series was broadcast on CBS. Starred Ger- Gerald McBrainy and Jameson Parker as two uh, disparate brothers who operate a two-person detective agency in San Diego. The show revolves around the decidedly polar opposite Simon brothers, Rick, played by McBrainy, and Andrew Jackson or AJ, 
played by Parker. Together, the brothers run a private investigation agency in San Diego, California during the 1980s. Their contrasting approaches to investigation and subsequent personality conflicts provide much of the drama and comedy in each week's episode. The brothers have a genuine love for one another as well as an intense loyalty and will go to great lengths to protect one another um, as well as their mom. Um, I can say this with all certainty. The best theme song in the 1980s was on this show. Hmm. The first theme song they came up with in the first half a season was good, but then they took it back because they didn't really like it. So they tricked it up with a slide guitar and a saxophone. I have included both of those, by the way. The first one and the second one. First one's not bad. It's pretty good. But the second one, yeah. When that guy uh, revs up on that slide guitar and then they, they play this dirty, dirty saxophone, this vamped out sax playing in the background. It's just incredible. Um, as a matter of fact, there was um, a thing called the greatest event in television history um, where they basically recreate openings from original shows. And the first one they did was this one because the song is so good. Um, so they sh- it was a shot for shot opening of Simon and Simon a la season about three or four. With Adam Scott and John Hamm as the roles of AJ and Rick, mm-hmm. I have included that in our video of this as well, as well as the original theme song, both of them. Um, the name of the theme song is "Best Friends." It was composed by Linda Creel and Barry uh, Devorzon, and it was performed by the Thrasher Brothers. Uh, the instrumental version of "Best Friends" appeared at the beginning of each episode. Uh, the beginning of the second season, the second and more recognizable instrumental theme song composed again by Barry DeVorzon, who had previously composed the theme song, the 1970s police drama SWAT, and Michael Towers was introduced. The theme consists primarily of an electric bottle slide guitar lead with a saxophone interlude and remained until the last episode of the final season. Now, again, it is the same song. They just use a different instrumentation of it. Um, Simon and Simon did not do well. It's first season until they had uh, a crossover with Magna P.I. where they filmed half the uh, half the the crossover was Magna P.I. and the other half was Simon and Simon. And additionally, A.J. Simon appeared in an episode of WizKids uh, called Deadly Access and returned the WizKids character Richie Adler, Hamilton Parker, Jeremy Saldino, Alice Parker, and Irene Adler appeared on a Simon and Simon episode called Fly the Alibi Skies the following night. So they did two crossovers. Simon and Simon also released uh, a follow-up film. It was a reunion movie, which premiered on February 23rd, 1995. Some years had passed and now divorced AJ, whose ex-wife is Janet Fowler from the original series, works in Seattle as an attorney. And Rick stops by to visit en route to delivering an expensive yacht. The trouble starts when the yacht is hijacked and Rick and AJ's mother, Cecilia, is on board. Um, I watched the movie Trouble Again. It's not really good. I'm going to be honest. First thing they did, they uh, they didn't use the theme song. Hmm. And it's like, why? Why would you not? Everybody knows that's the best theme song of the 1980s. Why not use it? It's better than the A-Team. It's better than Magnum P.I. It's better than Moonlighting. It's just good. Why not use it? But, you know, they couldn't figure that out. So, 
but yeah, they they almost canceled the show in '82 due to low ratings. However, uh, at DeGuerre and Shane's request, CBS decided to give the series another chance by moving it to Thursday nights following Magna PI. That's when they did the the crossover episodes. And uh, as a matter of fact, NBC didn't want to move Cheers to uh, the same night as Simon and Simon because they felt like Simon and Simon would beat it. Mm. Um, and, you know, Simon and Simon uh, was eventually moved to Saturday nights late in its run, uh, which the ratings dropped because Saturday night was death. But it still fared pretty well. Like I said, it ran from 81 to 1989. So right. Seven or eight seasons. Eight seasons. Run. Yeah, eight seasons. Um, the original television pilot called Pirate's Key was supposed to be set in Florida, but they decided San Diego would be cheaper to film in. San Diego and Los Angeles. Wow. Yeah, the series was created by executive producer Philip DeGuerre, who credited the inspiration to a request from a CBS executive to create something like a modern Butch and Sundance, which Simon and Simon really has. Mm -hmm. um, I've also included a picture of the power wagon. So Rick had this beat up old power wagon, which is a a Dodge truck that they released for basically industrial use. Um. And it's got little boxes on the side of it where you can hold um, tools, tackle. They keep guns in there. Um, but it's pretty awesome. If you've never seen Simon and Simon, it's it's pretty good. D dude, if nothing else, listen to the theme song. It's worth it. It will get stuck in your head all day. I'm hearing it right now as we're talking about it. I'm, I'm hearing that saxophone solo. I, am, um, I unfortunately do not remember the theme song off the top of my head. Oh, yeah. Let me go ahead and turn those uh, videos into a public view so you can hear that because you can yeah. see the whole thing. Yeah, <laughs> I'll do that as soon as this is over. I mean, I remember uh, the show. I just I can't think of the theme song. Um, After you hear the first two notes, you're like, oh, yeah, I remember this. So probably. Yeah, I'll turn that on to public as soon as we're done. Um, But, yeah, that's basically it for this five detective series from the 1980s other than get out and watch them um simon and simon is oh, just awesome it's funny it's dark people die yeah i would, agree. I would agree yeah i would agree on simon and simon that was a good show it was a good show. it was a fun show to watch yeah well, outstanding. Thanks for that. I appreciate you bringing another list of shows for us to scope <laughs> out. Hopefully our listeners go out and check these out as well. Yeah. Oh, like I said, everything can be seen except for Hard Knocks, and I have included an entire episode of Hard Knocks on our YouTube playlist. It is not great quality, but it's it's all you can get right now, at least until they release it again. Perfect. Perfect. Okay. Well, with that then, I guess we will step over to the murdery side of the house. Murder. Uh, for my story today, I got my information off Soapboxy, all that's interesting in Wikipedia. And this is the story of the Lululemon murder. Lululemon murder? Uh-huh. Okay. So Lululemon Athletica, the company that sells leggings and other athletic apparel that are now the staples of many product closets around the world, uh, was founded in Vancouver, Canada in 1998. I didn't uh, know they were Canadian. Mm-hmm. Okay. By the early 2010s, the brand popularity was skyrocketing, but in March of 2011, the company made headlines for a different reason, and I get to say it this time. 
murder. <laughs> uh, the case received widespread media coverage and was commonly referred to as the Lululemon murder. The horrific saga, saga began on March 12, 2011 in the Washington, D.C. suburb of Bethesda, Maryland. Walking down Bethesda Row, a nice clean shopping avenue lined with festive lights and retail outlets, the manager of the Lululemon Athletica store arrived a little before 8 a.m. to open up for the day. Little did she know she was about to enter one of the most gruesome and inexplicable crime narratives in recent history. As she pulled out the keys to unlock the door, manager Rachel Orderly uh, noticed the door was already unlocked. She thought this was odd, but Rachel assumed another store associate had come in earlier, perhaps someone had forgotten to lock up the night before. So she pushed the door open and stepped inside only to stop her tracks. Uh, the store lights were already on, and from what she could see, it looked like the store had been ransacked. Garments and accessories were strewn across the floor, and the cabinets were open. And she stared at the scene in front of her, very confused. She wondered, had they been vandalized? And so she dug for her phone to cautiously call out for, and, and cautiously call out for anybody who might still be there. She thought that maybe it was a misunderstanding or, and that another employee was already there. And that's when she heard the moaning coming from somewhere in the back. She ran out of the store and onto the street where she called 911. While outside, she noticed another person waiting beside the neighboring Apple store and she explained to the man, Ryan, about the moaning sound and would ask if he would go back inside with her to make sure nobody was hurt. So Ryan agreed, and while Rachel waited, he pushed his way through the distressed storefront. But a minute later, he yelled back to the for, he yelled from the back of the store and told her to call the police. And Rachel called 911 and said, I think somebody is dead. What Ryan had found was a body face down. And he told Rachel in the bathroom there was another person, a woman who was tied up, barely breathing, and may have been assaulted. And Rachel again called 911 to report what they had found in the store. Montgomery County police responded to the 911 calls and arrived at the store in to find the store in disarray. On the floor, which was covered in blood, they found two sets of crimson shoe prints, one big and one small. The non-responsive body in the back belonged to a 30-year-old woman named Jana Murray. Jana was an employee of the Lululemon store and had worked the closing shift the night before. Jana was a 30-year-old graduate student at John Hopkins University, and she had accepted the job at Lulu Athletica so she could meet other active people and attend seminars that would help her as she pursued a Master of Business Administration degree. Police also discovered a badly shaken 28-year-old Brittany Norwood, whose hands and feet were zip-tied in the bathroom, and she had cuts all over her chest, legs, arms, and face. Montgomery responders rushed Brittany to the hospital, and once she was stable, she recounted what happened that night. Brittany explained to police that the previous night on March 11th, she and Jana were closing the store together. She met Jana while working at the store, and fellow employees said there was never any issue between the two women. Once they left, Brittany realized she had forgotten her wallet. She got a hold of Jana and asked her to come back and unlock the store so she could grab it. Brittany was a newer employee, and Jana was a higher-up employee, so Jana was the one who had, who had the store keys. While they were inside the unlocked store, Brittany said two masked men barged in, attacked her and Jana, and proceeded to tie them up and sexually assault them. When Jana resisted, the men began beating her and eventually stabbed her to death. The men raped both women before killing Murray and tying Norwood up while calling her racial slurs, supposedly letting her live because she was more fun to have sex with, uh, according to the Washington Post. Oh, my God. 
Brittany said that at this point she realized she would have to do as they asked. She was beaten and cut with a knife, but mercifully survived with only superficial wounds, and the attackers left her tied up in the bathroom. Excuse me. Police asked the hospital to perform a medical examination on Brittany to preserve any DNA or other forensics evidence and then left to begin their investigation. After classifying the incident as a robbery-turned-homicide and attempted murder, police set out to find the perpetrators. Police initially treated Norwood as a victim in the Lululemon murder case. They began a manhunt for the perpetrators and asked local stores if any customers had purchased ski masks recently and even followed a man who matched Norwood's description of the killers. First, however, they had to probe the backgrounds of all the people involved, which at this stage meant the victims. Brittany Norwood was one of nine children. Her father owned an upholstery business, and although they didn't have much, the Norwood family stressed the value of hard work and education. By high school, Brittany was demonstrating good athletic skills and was recruited to play at Stony Brook University on scholarship as a defender on the women's soccer team. She started college in 2000 and played until 2003 when she was accused of stealing by not just her roommates, but also classmates and roommates. She definitively she definitely had a little problem with this, though most people considered it more of a joke, and everyone would say that was just something she does. A soccer teammate teammate said Norwood was her best friend in college, but they had a falling out because Brittany was acting acting like a kleptomaniac. Uh, Brittany stole money and, and a designer shirt from her. She also said that Norwood was sweet, funny, and an amazing soccer player, and stealing was her only vice, but this vice escalated, and eventually all the people she stole from came forward to report her, and Brittany was expelled from school, and she lost her scholarship. After her expulsion from college, Brittany moved to Washington, D.C. to live with her sister. She found success working at the front desk of the William Intercontinental Hotel, where she was quickly promoted to managing VIP guests. It was a good job, but Brittany still had athletic ambitions and decided she wanted to become a personal trainer, so she began applying for jobs at fitness studios in the area, and that's how she eventually ended up working at Lululemon. One day after the murder, Montgomery County police detectives continued to track leads and tips but couldn't find any other eyewitness accounts. Because the perpetrators had entered had entered the unlocked doors left open by the girls, there was no security cameras and no evidence of a break-in. Meanwhile, all the public knew is that there was an attack on two women. One was murdered and the other survived. Based on Brittany's reports, uh, police released a statement saying they were looking for two men, one around six feet tall and the other around five foot inches tall. However, investigators quickly became suspicious. Detective Dimitri Reuven, who questioned Brittany Norwood several times, said later, Quote, it's just this little voice in the back of my head. Something's not right. The way Brittany's describing these two guys, they're racists, they're rapists, they're robbers, they're murderers. It's like they're the worst human beings that you could possibly describe, right? Huh. The murder itself unsettled the previously quiet, low-crime suburb of Bethesda. The store owners offered a $125,000 reward to anyone who could help police find and apprehend the and convict the two male suspects. The community held a vigil, and as the night progressed, whispers began to fill the quiet space with stunning news. Brittany Norwood, the survivor, had just been arrested and charged with first-degree murder and Jaina's death. Once the police arrested Brittany Norwood, people reimagined the crime without mask intruders. Perhaps it was only Brittany and Jaina closing up the yoga store when things took a deadly turn. 
But Jaina's family, nor the community at large, still did not know what was going on as the police kept quiet on the details of the case. Those shocking details wouldn't be disclosed until Brittany's Nor- Brittany Norwood's trial seven months later. The Lululemon store where the crime occurred, it remained boarded up and closed as the town eagerly awaited the trial. When it finally reopened in 2011, Jaina's family attended at the ceremony. Above the entrance, the store was the store dedicated a tribute to Jaina, which was a stained glass mosaic engraved with the word love. In April, her parents told media that they were just as confused as everyone. They claimed their daughter never discussed Brittany and didn't even know the girl. They weren't even close enough for Jaina to mention. Brittany Norwood was finally charged with first-degree premeditated murder and second-degree uh, specific intent to kill murder, and her trial started on October 26, 2011. It wasn't until the trial that the public learned the most shocking details of the investigation. Jana and uh, Jana Murray and Brittany Norwood had been co-workers for only three weeks at the Bethesda Row Lululemon location. On March 11, 2011, they worked the shift together and then closed the store up and left the building. According to witness statements before she left, Jana performed a bag check common for retail store employees on Brittany, and Jana found stolen yoga, yoga pants in Brittany's bag, which was consistent with her history of stealing. It's unclear whether Jana confronted Brittany about the find or if there was just an awkward silence, but either way, Jana knew that Brittany, a new employee, had stolen from the store. And so Brittany called another Lulu's Lemon sales associate and, and then claimed that she'd left her wallet back at the store. Because they barely knew each other, Brittany didn't have Jana's number and needed to get it from the other employee. So she then called Jana and asked her to come back to the store to let her in so she could get the wallet. And this, according to prosecutors, was a premeditated ruse to lure, lure her back into the store. On March 12th, the day of the incident, Detective Deanna Mackey left, uh, met with Brittany at the hospital to get her statement, but at this point, she was still considered a victim. Police investigators just needed to get her story, which they hoped would provide some clues about the perpetrator. During this interview, Detective Mackey was astounded at the level of detail Brittany provided in her story about the masked intruder. Among these details was her claim that he assaulted her with a clothing hanger from the store, which was why the crotch of her pants had been torn. But the hospital reported back to police that Brittany's medical examination revealed no evidence of sexual assault. And while this doesn't necessarily disprove a rape allegation, it was added to the investigators' growing doubts about Brittany's account of the incident. On March 14th, two days after the incident, Detective uh, Reuven and James Drury, Detectives uh, Reuven and James Drury spoke to Brittany again, but this time at her home. And at this point, they still believe she was a victim. Brittany supposedly cried to detectives while revealing even more details about her supposed attack. On March 16th, two days later, a poli- police asked Brit to meet Brittany at the station to collect her fingerprints and hair sample for elimination purposes. And what she didn't know was that in the past few days, police had discovered her DNA inside of Jana's car and was now considering her a suspect. Wow. Well, not only that, but she had to call somebody else to get Jana's number. Did she just not think that the police were going to put that together? Right. Uh, the next day, Brittany's family called the police and said she had new details about the attack she had withheld out of fear that the attackers would return. One of the new details she provided was in the middle of the attack, the suspects untied Brittany and forced her to go outside by herself, get in Jana's car, move it, and come back in. Brittany likely concocted the story because she suspected police had found uh, evidence of her in Jana's car. Yeah. 
The next day, police brought her in for more questioning. She started the conversation by doubling down on the uh, apocryphal car story. She said that the reason she didn't get in the car was to help, was to go find help. The, the, she said the reason she didn't get in the car and go find help was that the attackers had seen her home address on her ID and she was scared they would find her. Brittany went on to say she'd even passed a cop while moving Jana's car, but she didn't attempt to alert the officer. She said she just parked the car and went back into the Lululemon store. When police explained to Brittany that her story just didn't make sense, they grew frustrated and she, and then she said she just wanted to go home. At this point, police finally confronted her with all the evidence they had collected. For the last six days, investigators had been discovering and identifying the murder weapon. These murder weapons provided the forensics evidence that led to her arrest one week later. Shockingly, police found eight different murder weapons that Brittany used to kill Jaina, including a hammer, a wrench, box cutter, and a merchandise peg. And these were all weapons that she had procured inside the store. Wow. It was a rampage. It was a brutal bloodbath in which Janus sustained 332 separate injuries, including 105 defensive wounds. She was also hit in the head with a metal bar from a shelving rack, shattering her skull and breaking her spine. And Murray's injuries were so gruesome that her family was not even able to have an open casket at her funeral. Wow. Brittany's injury on, injuries, on the other hand, were superficial and did not correlate with her fictitious perpetrator's style of attack. Half of the bloody shoe prints belonged to Brittany. After using items from the store toolkit <clears throat> to brutally murder Jana Murray, including the hammer, knife, a merchandise peg, a rope, and a box cutter, Brittany Norwood left the store and moved Murray's car to a parking lot three blocks away. She sat in the car for 90 minutes trying to come up with a plan to cover her crimes. Then Norwood went back into Lululemon and put her plan into action. She took money from the cash registers to stage a robbery, sliced open her for own forehead, <clears throat> and cut a gash in Murray's pants to make it seem like she had been sexually assaulted. The shoe she was wearing and the other half size came from a size 14 display shoe found inside the yoga store. This meant Brittany had grabbed the other shoe, dipped it in blood, and moved around the store manufacturing footprints. Then she bound her own feet and hands and spent the night laying in the store next to Jana's corpse. Wow. During the trial, prosecutors showed the jury all the evidence, including phone calls and video footage of Brittany claiming not to know the type of car Jana drove. The evidence was so overwhelming that Brittany had to alter her plea to self-defense. The Montgomery County jury deliberated for 21 minutes before deciding she was guilty. Okay, here they're like, okay, she's guilty. She's guilty. She's guilty. She's guilty. I would like the Reuben for lunch. Yes, lunch and guilty. <laughs> uh, Brittany was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. While it's believed Brittany's actions were fueled by a desire to stop Jaina from reporting her theft, investigators never did figure out an underlying psychological motive. And really, per, there may not be any satisfactory explanation for such a sudden and barbaric crime. I mean, really, over the fact that she was caught stealing? Yeah, a pair of pants. A pair of pants. She killed another human being and concocted this great big story for a pair of pants. Yes. And she's gonna get, She's going away for life now. Whereas she just would have been fired. Right. You know, I think, you know, honestly, it really sounds like this girl is just dumb. 
Does that make sense? I mean, yeah. like she's just not her reasoning skills don't work right. No, well, and the and the escalation level of yeah uh, of of the crime doesn't doesn't fit. It just yeah. I, I mean, was she that afraid of being fired that she was willing to kill to cover it up, and actually think she was going to get away with it? Yeah. Well, dumb enough to realize that yeah, um, they're not going to figure this out because I've left evidence everywhere. Right. Well, in 2015, she contested her conviction using a Maryland state law that guarantees circuit court defendants the right to an appeal. Her lawyers claimed that Brittany didn't receive a Miranda warning early enough in the investigation was and was thus improperly questioned by detectives. Now, yeah, she was considered a victim at first. Yes. Damn it. Um, a Maryland appeals court rejected this claim and affirmed the first-degree murder conviction. The court also rejected the defense assertion that Brittany's trial contained improper testimony from a patrol officer who was questioned about knife wounds. The, courtly bluntly, the court bluntly stated the evidence of Norwood's guilt was overwhelming. The lead prosecutor, Montgomery State's attorney, John McCarthy, said the ruling effectively ended all of Brittany's uh, appeal options. He said of Brittany... Quote, her cunning and ability to lie is almost unparalleled. Though Norwood will most likely be behind bars the rest of her life, those involved in the case will never forget the brutality of the Lululemon murder. And that is my story for today. Well, thank you, sir. Appreciate that one. Do you? Yeah, I do, actually. <laughs> I appreciate all of them, even though uh, I'm kind of creeped out by some of them. Yeah, and I and I get that way too. I've I've actually had to take a break for a while from listening to some of my true crime podcasts. I've been trying to listen to a little bit more upbeat to right on. Kind of kind of get a little 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 more happiness in my life. Right on. So, thank you again for that. Thank you for this week. We appreciate all of you who have stuck around with us, listening all the way through episode 79. We appreciate each and every one of you. As always, you can find our information on nerderymurdery.com where you can find our contact information. Tell us the things you want to hear. Tell us the things you don't want to hear. If you've got recommendations for episodes, we're always open to listen to that. We also have a YouTube channel where you can go and see some of these videos that we've talked about as well as uh bits and even entire episodes of some of the stuff that we've discussed it is at nerdery and murdery uh just go on to youtube type in nerdery and murdery and you'll get the playlists and other videos we shot things we think are funny stuff like that outstanding thank you for that thank you you can also find the link to our merchandise on our website where if you wish to show off your nerdery and murdery fandom you could certainly check it out there and you'll also find the link to our Patreon. So if you wish to donate to the show, help us with our costs that, uh, to help keep us going. We sincerely appreciate each and one of each and every one of our patrons as you do get exclusive episodes and episodes two weeks early. Please and thank you. Please and thank you. And last, please don't forget to leave us a five-star review wherever you can. It helps us. It helps others find our show that may be looking for our content. So just as you found us, please do help others do so as well. So with that, that's the end of this week. I have been Zig with your nerdery. And I'm Jeffrey with your murdery. Cue the music. Music.